Welcome to the Lifting Lindsay podcast. Today, I have Brian Borstein here with me, and I'm really excited to have you on, Brian. I think I started following... Well, first off, I really try to choose guests that I really respect and that I want people to follow. Like I want my followers to get on, follow, see what you're doing, learn from you, because I feel like you have a, um, a fun and balanced approach to fitness. And so I'm really, really hoping that a lot of my followers can be introduced to you and then learn from you. But I think I, I'm trying to remember, we didn't go to any N1 camps together. No, I was in the one that was maybe a month or two after you last year, oh, I think. Okay. Um, and so we connected, I think possibly through Jordan or maybe there was, you, I'm sure all of us people in the N1 network, like... Was it Val maybe? Yeah, or Val. Yeah, it could have been Val or Ruth. I mean, I, I'm kind of connected with all of them, but I wasn't at the N1 with any of them. Okay. And then Aaron Straker, my podcast host, was at the N1 literally the weekend before me, and he was with Val, I think. Okay. So there's it was there was like four N1 seminars all in like the fall of 2021, and I think our whole group of people that I just listed all attended one within that time yeah. frame. I, I went the, the, yeah, the month before I went in December and it was when they first were kind of unveiling some of their like newer takes on overloading different divisions of the tricep and different things like that. And I just remember they hadn't really refined it yet, like the teaching of it yet. So I'm like, man, I'm going to wait from now on. I'm going to wait when they have like new stuff that they're trying to unveil. Because for those of you who don't know, this is a biomech, we're referring to like a biomechanics course done by N1 by Kasim Hansen. And, and, um, he, he really, I think he's doing a great job of questioning the exercises that, uh, have been used a lot and have with thrown out being like this, this is the best exercise for X, Y, and Z. And so he's doing a ton of testing on those exercises. And then also not just testing with EMG, but he also takes into consideration, um, (laughs) physics, which is smart and, um, (laughs) and just like biomechanics, how the body functions. So Brian, I'm excited to talk a little bit about that because you've had the chance to actually be the guinea pig in a lot of these. A recent one was on back. So talk to us a little bit about what what you do, your business, and then let's talk about some of those things that you've done with Casim. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so I own a couple fitness companies. Uh, mostly we do uh, like group coaching uh, in the app. So uh, we have a program through Train Heroic on my company, Paragon Training Methods. And uh, we have like nine different programs with three like dumbbell only programs that include, well, dumbbells and bands. So they're like at home programs. And then we have uh, a few different like physique style programs that are meant more for like a commercial gym, but also, you know, you can do at home as well with like barbells and stuff like that. And then we have two programs that are more like performance based because I, my background is, my background is very, very mixed, but uh, I basically did bodybuilding, uh, strength training through high school and college and even post-college. And then I started a CrossFit gym in 2010, did CrossFit uh, competitively for a number of years, sold my CrossFit gym in 2016 or 17, 
and moved back into like kind of what is now the evidence-based physique space. So we have these two performance programs that are more kind of like a hybrid between a physique bodybuilding style focus, but with some of these more metabolic conditioning and Olympic lifting and kind of some of the different things that you would see in uh, like a CrossFit style programming. So we have nine total programs, which keeps me pretty busy. Um, and then backtracking a little bit, my very first company that I started right out of CrossFit was called Evolved Training Systems. And we do similar things to what I just discussed with Paragon. Um, but it's just mine. Uh, Paragon is, is partnered with uh, my business partner, Lori Christine King. At Evolved, it's much smaller, uh, less curated would be a way of saying it. But what I love about Evolved and the reason I've kept it around is because I kind of look at it a little bit like my science lab where I get to experiment with different programming methodologies and things that I'm excited about. And then because it's a smaller audience, I can get some more intimate feedback from people on what they think of the the programming and the the way it's relayed, wow. explained. Um, and we'll get into some of the concepts like partials and reverse drop sets and, and stuff like that. But um, I like to try all that stuff on the Evolve program first, get some feedback. And then if it's, you know, if it's, if it's communicated well, then great, it can move over to the other program. Um, if it's not, then I need to refine kind of how I communicate it and, and go forward from there. So right now, I've basically been back into this evidence-based fitness scene uh, since 2016-17 when I left CrossFit. Just founded, uh, I guess, N1 in Casim right before the pandemic. So maybe it was like late 2019 or something along those lines. And that's been a huge influence on me uh, the last few years as far as like my programming and the implementation of my training and the training that I uh, put out to others as well. Awesome. Okay. So you're, you live pretty close to them. So they've had you come in. If, if you guys follow N1, which if you follow me, I talk about them quite a bit because they influenced a lot of my view on training, on exercise selection. I honestly, I really do believe that a lot of the principles that I took from them, I had, I had definitely hit a plateau. I'm not genetically just like blessed with muscle. <laughs> like some <laughs> of us have to just work so hard for every single bit that we get, right? And I really believe that uh, the principles that I took from them about exercise selection has helped me immensely continue to see progress and put muscle on, but also stay relatively injury free too. So I, I just love their stuff, but you're there pretty close with them. So if you guys follow N1 or Casim and you see a man with his shirt off with a bunch of things stuck to his back, I get messages. I, I posted, I think that post of Kassam's tw uh, twice saying different things on it. And people are like, what is, why is that guy's shirt off? Why, what are those things on his back? <laughs> so if you see a half naked man, it's most likely either Brian or Cody. Like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's yeah, you, totally. either <laughs> of you two. Talk to us a little bit about your experience doing that. What are some of your bigger takeaways? Yeah. Yeah. No, good question. Um, so yeah, I feel very lucky. I live 10 minutes away, 10 minute drive from N1 HQ. Um, so I actually bike there in the summer when it's nice out and, uh, when it's not like right now, <laughs> I will drive and it's nice and easy. And, uh, and yeah, I, I'm very lucky to be able to learn from Kasim cause he's, um, got a really cool brain when it comes to this stuff. So those things on me, 
are uh, are called EMG uh, electrodes or sensors or something along those lines. Um, and EMG is a way of assessing kind of the activation that a muscle experiences. Um, I don't think that tension would necessarily be the right <laughs> word because it it isn't super good at assessing tension through the full range of motion. It is much better at assessing what's happening at the contracted position, the point where the, the muscle contracts, or we would refer to this as the short position. Um, so you could think of this in like a bicep curl, where if your arm is straight and stretched, then that would be the stretched position. Your bicep is elongated, right? So it's stretched. Um, you can kind of see the same thing in an RDL, where when you get to the bottom of your RDL, you can feel that like deep stretch in your glutes or your hamstrings. That would be the lengthened position. And then in the bicep curl, as you curl up and your bicep flexes, what's happening is your muscle is getting shorter. It's contracting. So that's called the short position. Um, on the RDL, there isn't really a short position. So mm -hmm. maybe that's a poor example to use as a comparison. Uh, an RDL is just a lengthened movement because when you stand up fully at the top, there's nothing happening. You're just standing there. Um, so there is no short position. Um, but if you look at something like a leg curl, you know, the same would apply as it would with a bicep curl, uh, where you have the lengthened position where it's stretched and then the heels come toward the butt and it contracts. Um, so anyways, the EMG is really good at sensing what's happening at that short position and not so good at sensing what's happening at the length in position. So yeah, I mean, that's definitely a limitation of it, but I think it's still effective. And the way kind of Cass explained it to me as far as how uh, we should look at it as far as how it's useful for us is not looking at what's happening in a single movement because what he did, let me backtrack a minute. What he did is he put electrodes all over my body at different spots. So my rear delt, posterior delt back here, uh, we had my teres, which is kind of like the top of the lat. Some people call that the, the lat's little helper. Um, and then the three different divisions of my lat as well, uh, like thoracic, uh, lumbar and iliac, the, that goes from high to low. Uh, where iliac would be the lowest portion of the lat on the bottom that connects into the, the iliac crust. So what we found is that acutely in any given movement, you can see different things firing and it's difficult to get an assessment of what actually, what movement is most biased, just given what's happening in that movement specifically. What you want to do instead is say, you look at the iliac lat electrode. And if I'm doing like an iliac lat pull down, we want to see what movement it is where the iliac lat is the most active. As an example, when I was doing the iliac lat pull down, I was getting a ton of reading in my posterior delt and my teres as well, despite the fact that the movement is meant to bias more of this like lower lat region. Um, but then when you compare what the iliac lat reading was on that movement compared to what the iliac lat reading is at its peak on a different movement, like say like a, a wide grip pull down with your, your hands facing forward pronated, you would see a much higher iliac lat peak on the, the iliac lat pull down version than you would on that wide grip pull down. So it's not just looking at what's happening in the specific movement, but it's comparing the peak across different movements of what, what peaks, right? So when you look at the Terry's measurement, like you were getting plenty of Terry's reading in that iliac lat pull down, but it paled in comparison to how much Terry's you were seeing when you do that front uh, pronated pull down. So usually I'm just going to say this for 
my followers, usually the iliac biased pull down, that's when you keep your elbow really close to your side, I would say. So throughout the movement, it's like more narrow grip versus the, the wider elbow path. So those were what's being compared. I'm just going to kind of sum up what I heard from this, Brian, is if you just look at the single movement itself, you could say, oh, well, that's not a iliac lat biased movement because look at these readings. It's an everything kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There's so much firing. Um, And sometimes it's hard with research because words matter. So whenever I talk to people and they're like, well, that's not true because it, that works this muscle and that exercise works this muscle. And I'm always like, define works, define works. Like, I feel like we've got to kind of define these things a little bit better. And I really appreciated Brian, you breaking down EMG and what we're really looking at here and what we can really glean from it. So if you're just looking at one exercise, you could say, oh, well, yeah, everything's working. It's not necessarily biasing. But then when you compare it to these other exercises, now in the comparison, we get a little bit more context and we can glean and pull a little bit more. Yeah, totally. So I think that like one way of maybe clarifying this would be like, if you just look at the iliac lat pull down, it was either the teres or the posterior delt that looked like it had even like a higher reading than the iliac just on an acute basis. Mm-hmm. But when you compare what the highest point of the iliac reading was on the iliac pull down versus what the highest iliac reading was on a plethora of other movements, it never reached quite as high as it did on the peak of one. the iliac lat pull down movement. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. You You kind of walked away saying okay, this one back exercise is kind of the king. I mean, we can't take that out of context, but but you were pretty excited. At least I was excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what I really liked about uh, the one specific movement that I'll mention, which is it's a neutral grip pull down where your, your torso is leaned back. But it's important when you lean back that you're not leaning back via thoracic extension. So you're not doing it by arching at your spine and sticking your chest up. You're you're leaning back instead by kind of sucking your belly down and keeping your spine neutral. Um, and that, that, that subtle difference makes, makes a difference because when you're in thoracic extension where your spine is arched, you're naturally going to gravitate to using more of like the the upper back musculature, not as much lats. Do you know what? I love that you bring this up because I showed this whole thing to my husband and I'm like, <laughs> my husband is hilarious. He, his background is he he's done bodybuilding, a ton of shows, but he's also a computer nerd. So he lets me like dive into the biomechanics of all this. But I showed him this and I showed him the reading and I was like, so if you're going to just choose like one, you you can go in and just do one exercise for the back. Maybe this is it. And he, and he said, oh, okay, so we arch our back. And I'm like, no, don't arch your back. <laughs> it was so funny because he's like, well, look, he, it, his back looks arched. And I'm like, no, he has pecs, hun. He has like a good chest. Like, so it's giving that illusion, but do not. That was the first thing. So I was going to ask you about that. Can I tell my husband I was right? <laughs> that, that's yeah, all I want to know. Of course, really. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. So by keeping our spine neutral there, what it does is it takes out some of those upper back musculature. And so when you looked at the EMG readings for that movement specifically, what we saw was the lowest readings from the teres of any of the movements that we tested. There was still plenty of rear delt. So it kind of seems like you can't separate rear delt from basically any pulling movement. Like any pulling movement you do, you're going to have a bunch of rear delt in there. But it had the highest readings for the three different lat regions. So it seemed like just a, an all-encompassing lat killer, which is which is great, but it's also less biased. Yeah. Like it's not like one lat region, you know, it's not so if you were an elite level bodybuilder and you're like, I really need to bring up like my my iliac lat or my lumbar lat or whatever, like, yeah, that movement would probably be pretty good, but I'm sure there would be arguments to be made for you could bias a little bit better by choosing the iliac lat pull down if you want to bias your iliac lat, you know? So somebody like uh, me or a client who's more like wants a more balanced, like a lifestyle client, uh, this might be like a perfect exercise. If they're not really looking to specify any certain region, this this could be a great overall exercise for them. Even just to maintain, because right now my back is where I want it to be. I actually don't want to add any more uh, to my back. And so this for me was like one, two times a week doing this is, is kind of, that's like, that to me is perfect for maintenance. Yeah. I think that if you are looking at it from that perspective, that you should probably have two back movements in there. Um, and this one is a great one for your like kind of sagittal plane, uh, neutral grip one. That's going to be a little bit more lat dominant. And then I think that you should have some back movement that is, um, a little bit wider and has your elbow path a little further out. Um, just because we know like with that movement that we just discussed that had the lowest Terry's readings. Mm -hmm. So you're going to want something that's a little bit wider, possibly that goes from wide to narrow. Um, and then when you do that, then you'll get the rest of the stuff that was missed potentially by that one pull down variation. Well, I, I feel very validated in this moment because if you were to look at my last program I wrote for myself, that's exactly what I did, right? So <laughs> perfect. <laughs> I feel very validated. Now, what about specific, you said a lot of pull movements just naturally, and I, I think depending on someone's arm path, but most of them are just going to be rear delt. Yeah. I mean, even that iliac lat pull down, like had extremely high rear delt readings, but like, like we kind of said in the beginning, it doesn't read what's happening at the stretch position. Mm -hmm. And we know via the last three or four years of research, the nine studies that have come out or whatever, that like at least seven of the nine have shown that training at long muscle lengths or overloading the length and position, which would essentially just mean choosing a movement, an exercise where that portion is the most challenging in the movement, um, kind of like an RDL would be for the hamstrings. We know that, you know, that's potentially more important than what an EMG tells us about the contracted position. And so then you're kind of left to have to do some hypothesizing based on some mechanical modeling, um, which is like, you know, we know that the lats kind of stretch around the rib cage. And so if your arm comes across the front of your body, uh, adduction across the front of your body, that potentially will stretch the lat further than it would if you were just sagittally, like directly in front of yourself. Um, and then same thing with the rear delt. Like we know the rear delt is going to stretch um, across the body as well. It can't use the rib cage in the same way, but 
I think there's an argument to be made that the iliac lat pull down, even though it showed this super high reading for the rear delt, um, I think that compared to a movement that is specifically for the rear delt, I think you could get a lot more rear delt by lengthening it. Mm-hmm. And I also think you could get a lot more out of your lat by lengthening it. And the EMG just isn't going to tell you that. Like that iliac lat pull down might actually be more iliac lat than we even know or than the EMG can tell us because it, there's no way of assessing what the tension is on that lat at the stretch position, which is probably most important anyways. Okay. Love it. So I just kind of want to sum up what we've discussed here. EMG, very, very useful tool. I'm going to compare it because this is one that's been compared a million times with most women. The scale is a useful tool, but if you're only using the scale, you are going to miss out on really what's going on with your body, right? There's so many other tools for measurement and change that we need to utilize. And I feel like oftentimes people hang everything on an EMG reading. So I've uh, witnessed people hanging like all of the truth of one of, for example, the glute development all comes down to hip thrust. Just hip thrust your way to big glutes because the EMG is firing big time, guys. And let me show you this model and what it's doing during this time. And I I just want to reiterate, it's useful. It's one tool of many that should be considered. What I actually, it's interesting, but what I find more useful are studies that show hypertrophy happening, right? So the tool is great, but I, you brought this up, Brian, that there are, we've, we've gotten a lot of studies recently and, and meta-analysis that are really exciting about working in more of the lengthened position of the muscle showing more hypertrophy. So you and I have both been studying this a lot. So I was so excited that you wanted to talk about this. So I'm just going to like hand the baton to you. What do you want people to know? For those who have been doing my muscle and strength group in my training app, they saw how I decided to use this over the past like four weeks now. And some of them are like, ow, like <laughs> this is this is crazy. So anyways, how have you been... Um, you, what's your breakdown of the studies that you've read and how have you been practicing it? Well, my breakdown of the studies is basically that training at long muscle lengths is on a, at least a one-to-one basis, like one set of this versus one set of that, which is not the best way of looking at hypertrophy programming. But if you just take one set of a length and movement and one set of a short movement, you're going to get more hypertrophy from the length and movement. Um, that's a slippery slope because... Lengthy movements are also more damaging, so you can't do as many of them, which is great if you're into saving time. That's like, uh, I think one of the biggest assets of all of this understanding now is that if you just want to get in and get the most effective workout in, like you probably don't need to waste time doing a bunch of short overload movements. So I explained training at long muscle lengths a bit earlier. And I think if I have to get one thing across to people, that's probably the most important when it comes to this stuff is that looking at sets as equivalent of this exercise that trains hamstrings is the same as this exercise that trains hamstrings. It's all one set. 
I think that's a dangerous way of looking at this. Give an example of that. Like when we look at studies, meta-analyses, um, even the the big meta-analysis from 2017 by Schoenfeld and colleagues that demonstrated that 10 to 20 sets per muscle group is the best hypertrophy range, right? Mm-hmm. I'll get into the way they counted volume in a second. Essentially, they counted, one of the ways they counted it was by taking something like a leg extension and taking a back squat or a lunge and saying, hey, they're each one set for the quads. Like, it's just one set for the quads, right? So so 10 to 20 sets, like, I don't know, if you did all sets of split squats, is that still a reasonable number of sets to do? Or if you did all sets of leg extensions and you had no squatting in there, like, is that reasonable? I don't know. I think that because of the stimulus and the damage piece, where these lengthened movements give you so much more stimulus and more damage, and the short movements give you some really acute stimulus to like one specific area. Um, so they don't cause that much damage, but they're also not going to give you a ton of stimulus to like different regions of the muscle. Right. So it's kind of like you want to look at things a little bit more broadly in how you assess the, uh, the number of sets that you're doing, uh, again, like another comparison being like a lying leg curl and an RDL are just considered the same. Uh, it's one set for the hamstrings, but we know that you can do, three sets of RDLs and be sore for four days, but you would have to do 10 or 12 sets of leg curls to probably get the same level of of soreness in your body. So we need to take these things into account. I love that you brought that up because there's so much talk about frequency right now. I don't know if you've been, I'm sure you have. I mean, people have taken a few studies to the extreme of, well, now I'm going to do full body six days a week. And I'm like, okay, so but how are you doing that? If we're really wise about exercise selection, I think I'm not sure that there's any more benefit to more than three times a week, but even three times a week, I think somebody has to be pretty smart about how they're distributing volume. And, you know, are they going in and doing hack squats? Let's, let's just talk about the quads. They want to see quad development. Are they going in three days a week and doing hack squats? Uh, are they doing partial reps at the bottom? Are they doing pauses? Like you said, are they causing a lot of mechanical damage? Or is it three days of leg extension? Very different. Very, very different. Yeah, I totally agree. Kind of following up on that point about this counting volume thing is as we kind of get down this rabbit hole of we'll just stay with quads. Essentially, what we know about these short overload movements is that many of them actually lack a ton of tension at the stretched position. So this is a problem for two reasons. One, because you kind of just want tension throughout the entire movement. You don't want a dead spot in the movement. Um, And second, the stretch position is the most important. So if you have a movement that sucks at tension in the most important position, then we need to do something to make that position more effective. And so this is kind of getting into some of the strategies that I've used to... um, to create tension in movements that lack tension in those areas. So you could think of this as the bottom of the leg extension, right? When we do a leg extension, inherently, everyone thinks that their money is made, that their gains are at the top of the rep because that's what they feel. They're like, oh, that's where it's really hard. Like that's where it's Mm -hmm. at, you know? There was a study on leg extensions and they assessed five different ranges of motion, but I'm just going to focus on three of them for the sake of this podcast. Uh, One group, did just the top half of the range of motion. One group did just the bottom half, meaning that they started from the bottom where the quad is stretched and they only went up until the knee was halfway up to lockout. 
And then the third group just did a full range of motion. So they went all the way from the bottom, all the way to the top. And what they found is that the movement that did just the, the people that did just the top of the movement had the worst results. That's where they probably felt it the most, right? And where the EMG would have been the most uh, sensitive. (laughs) So feelings don't equal hypertrophy. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Big surprise. So the group that did the top had the worst results, significantly worse. The group that had the bottom only, so they never went to the top, they had the best results. And then the full range of motion group um, had just barely less than the bottom group. Hmm. So full range of motion was almost as good as doing just the bottom. And the hypothesis is basically that it's because it included the bottom. That's why the full range of motion was was almost as good because it had the bottom in it. But just doing the bottom was better. And so you could kind of extrapolate that out to a lot of different movements like a bicep curl. Like why do we come all the way up into the contraction at the top? Because that's what you feel. But really, most of your gains are going to be at the bottom. However, I think if we were to say there is one specific muscle group that really, really can be aided by emphasizing the length and position more. I think it's the back. It's the back, it's the lats, it's it's all those different things because it's the only muscle group where every exercise we do is short overloaded, meaning that the part of the movement where your arms are close to your body or behind your body, that is ubiquitously the hardest part of the movement. This isn't as big of a problem for other muscle groups because in that leg extension example, it's not even that big of a deal if you don't do, uh, if you don't have a ton of tension at the bottom because you do hack squats and you do leg presses and you do split squats and you do all these other movements that are hardest at the bottom. Um, same thing with a leg curl. Not a big deal if you just do full range of motion leg curls because you also do RDLs and you do 45 degree hip extensions and other things that are going to help you train the long muscle length piece. The back, however, doesn't have any of those movements. Every single movement we do is short overloaded. So what we need to do is come up with some really cool techniques that are going to allow us to put more tension into that lengthened region. Okay. So what have you been doing? Name some of your favorites. Yeah. So I I actually use these techniques as a progression mechanism, um, which I think is somewhat unique. I haven't seen too many other people doing this. Um, but the way I generally will construct a mesocycle is that I'll take my length and movements and I'll put them in a bucket. So we have our like hack squats and our RDLs and our chest presses and, uh, what else? Those are probably the main ones that we need to focus on split squats. Um, but anything lengthened, we're just going to put it in a bucket and we're going to mm, generally start mesocycles at about four reps from failure. And then we'll probably work to one rep from failure over the course of six weeks. So those are pretty simple. You know, you just kind of add some weight each week, let your reps get closer to failure. Not a big deal. We don't think too much about it. Short overload movements end up in a separate bucket. And the way that we progress these is very different. So uh, for this example, I want to use a cable row. Is that cool for your listeners? Yeah. Cool. All right. Cable row. Very easy at the stretch position. Some tension is there, but really hard as the elbow gets to the torso and beyond. Short overload movements like a cable row will generally start a mesocycle at about two reps from failure. So that's already two reps closer to failure than where we would start like a hack squat or an RDL or something like that. Um, The next week, week two, will generally be one or zero to one reps from failure. And then by week three, we're going into partials. And what that basically means is that 
say you do a set of cable rows to failure and you get 10 reps. And then on the next set, I might say, I want you to go to failure again. And then I want you to try to get three more reps. So you might get eight or nine reps to failure after you did 10 the first set, and then you'll do three more attempted reps. What those attempted reps are doing is they're training that portion of the movement that is more lengthened. So we're not expecting to get our elbows all the way back behind our torso. We're just going to not compromise form and we're going to pull as hard as we can with the proper muscles and just get the weight as far as you can. So that's kind of where we would end up in week three. Then in week four, I'll usually implement something called a reverse drop set. And uh, anyone that's familiar with drop sets, that basically just means that you would reduce the weight um, and then continue going. So in a reverse drop set, you increase the weight and keep going. So you would do like a cable row to, usually I'll, I'll keep some RIR, some reps from failure in the tank for that one, because we're going to increase the weight immediately, right? We're going to basically just change the pin in the stack and then keep going. So um, I like to do these as a, as a match. So uh, say I get eight reps of cable rows on my full range of motion set, and then I'll add 20% load. So say I would go from 100 pounds to 120 pounds, and then I would match eight reps that I got on the first set. And I would understand that I'm probably going to get one full range of motion rep or no full range of motion reps, and I'll just get to those eight reps that I need to achieve via partial reps that are going to fall off and get slightly smaller each rep that I do. Um, so that's where we are in week four. And then in week five and beyond, I usually incorporate something that I'm calling lengthened sets. And this is ex the same idea as the reverse drop set, except that you take a full rest period between. So say I would do my full range of motion cable rows and I get 10 reps to failure. Now I'm going to rest for two or three minutes or whatever my designated rest is. I'm going to add 20% weight. Same thing. I go from hundred pounds to 120 pounds, and then I'm going to get eight reps again but this time I may get a couple full range of motion reps because I had that two to three minute rest and I'm jumping the weight up 20%. Eh, I usually get two, maybe three full range of motion reps. And then I would finish the set with five or six partial reps. And then the final thing that I'll implement is another version of a lengthened set. And in this one, you actually um, set your target range of motion closer to the lengthened position. So say we consider on the cable row that 100% full range of motion is uh, full retraction, elbows behind the body, right? Well, if I'm doing a lengthened set, I might say that full range of motion is my elbow getting almost to my torso. So instead of behind mm -hmm. my torso, it's like, we'll just say right to about my torso or just in front of my torso. So maybe it's 70% of the range of motion. And the objective is to try to match that range of motion on every single rep that you do. Um, this is certainly a challenging endeavor and something I'm struggling with because what it feels like doesn't always um, look as you would expect when you rewatch re your <laughs> video of, of your movement. So it's been a process for me of finding a way to make sense of that where I can turn what I'm feeling into what I'm seeing and vice versa so that I'm over time, gradually getting better at kind of hitting that 70% on each of my reps. That's awesome. Do you, so you only do this really though with shortened overloaded movements. Am, am I right? Yeah. So I, you know, 
I've heard a number of, of experts in the field discuss recently using some of this stuff on lengthened movements, like just doing the bottom of the, of the hack squat or something like that. But I kind of just find that redundant. Um, I mean, it's already a lengthened overload movement. It's already hardest at the bottom. It just like, to me, it kind of seems redundant and I would rather just keep good form and do reps that I'm comfortable with and have a start and an end position, um, because they're already effective the way they are. Like maybe it's mildly more effective if you did the bottom. I, I don't know. I'm not sure where I stand on that yet. Um, but I know for sure that I stand very confidently that the length and range of short movements is going to be much more productive. Yeah, no, I really like that, uh, utilizing it a lot more in those shortened positions. I think that there's wisdom in that. I have been playing around with both (laughs) and because this is what is so much fun about fitness. I, I love reading the literature. I love reading the studies and then being like, okay, but what does that look like in practice? Right. And what does it feel like to me? What does it feel like to others? Um, what can we see? And so I've been doing the same thing as you. I actually have been using it as a progression. Cool. I've been doing it in the lengthened though, with some of them, not all of them. It's really fun to kind of use it as a progression for the lengthened and then to pull it. Oftentimes when people think of progressions, they think of adding a set, adding a rep and, and, you know, the very end of their, uh, training cycle is going to be with the most sets and most reps and the highest weight or whatever, however it is that they're figuring that out. But, um, but I've actually been really enjoying adding like on the third and fourth week pauses or partial reps in the lengthened, um, hack squat. I did it. It was, I wanted to cry. I was like, I was mad at myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, this is so stupid. But then it was really fun because as a progression, I pulled it, which actually allowed me to load the weight a lot more. And I found, I was surprised by the findings because I noted it in myself and I noted it with a lot of clients too, that I had kind of gotten stuck, um, on my weight with the hack squat. And I was able to hit a PR after that. So that was really fun to be able to see that. And I was really surprised when a lot of app users were saying the same thing that I pulled that Mm -hmm. fourth count and rep. I mean, it was horrible what I did to him, but I pulled that. And I was finally able to increase my strength even more. So oftentimes I think to myself, well, what does that mean? Right? What does that mean? Does that mean like it quote unquote worked? Does it mean that they're going to get more gains? But a lot of times I think it can just come down to there was a mental block that I overcame and that's exciting to see progress. And at the end of the day, sometimes that's all somebody needs to win and then take that strength into the next and and that mental uh, strength into the next training cycle. I've been having fun with both. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear the the stories of you using it on the compounds and stuff because because I would say I'm definitely a little a little close minded on that. Like I, I, don't, I heard <laughs> Mike, I, I heard Mike Isratel talk about it on a podcast, and maybe it's just because I I tend to like sometimes be a little judgy of things that Mike says. Um, but he, he, he was talking about it, man, the guy was asking him about 
you know, what are good uses of, of partial reps in the length and position? And he literally only talked about these like big, heavy compound movements. He was like, yeah, you can do like the bottom of the bench press and you can do the bottom of the pendulum squat and like all these things. And in my head, I'm like, but that's not the best use for it. You know, like he didn't even bring up the fact that, so he actually said a, a row was a bad movement to do it on because he's like, how do you know, like you don't have a standardization of where you're going to each rep. And I'm like, yeah, but it's the same thing with the bench press yeah. and the squat. So yeah. his arguments sometimes like don't, don't always make sense to me, but, but anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. So what I wanted to say was that I have a similar story to you about using these bottom range partials and overcoming what is the word I'm looking Just for? Just like a plateau? Yeah, a plateau. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was doing leg extension and I couldn't get past like 210 for nine full range of motion reps. And then I got into my lengthened weeks and I started doing uh, like 20% higher than that. So like 250 pounds, but I would just be focusing on the bottom range. And I did that for a number of weeks in a row. And then when I came back to the full range of motion leg extensions at the beginning of my next mesocycle, I was like 15 pounds heavier. I was doing nine reps with 225. And so that was all from just like you said, kind of getting comfortable in that bottom position, getting confident with, you know, handling that weight. Mm -hmm. So exposing yourself to heavier weights over time can then breed your ability to, to manifest that into these full range of motion reps. So now we have two examples between you and I of this working super effectively for progression. Well, that's science. You can just quote that as fact now. I mean, Lindsay and Brian. Two. It's done. <laughs> yeah, <enough> two. <laughs> done. <laughs> I love it. No, but there's so much to be gleaned from. Uh, I I really loved what you shared about the row because that can be that can be utilized. As, well, so many of these things can be utilized at home when people don't have the same equipment as the gym, or maybe they don't even have the same weight that, that could really test their strength at home, but just utilizing some of the things that Brian has shared today will definitely help people because I mean, that's just a great way to progress just going through these partials. Yeah. I loved them. So I'm like getting ideas now. I'm like, how can I, how can I steal these Brian? <laughs> I actually have a post on my Instagram page uh, from a few months ago that is titled, progression model for hypertrophy. And I kind of break this down, um, on that okay. post. So if you want to reference yeah. that, you can totally do the same, but yeah. So I kind of think that muscle is, is really just a dumb piece of meat more or less. It doesn't exactly know a whole lot of things. Uh, it just knows tension would be like a simple way of saying it. And so, you know, the idea of I need to add a set or I need to add reps every week or, or weight or something like that. Like, it, there's so so much ambiguity in that anyways, because if you shift your technique in any way and then you add five pounds to the bar, like a back squat's a perfect example. You do a back squat and your torso is perfectly upright and your quads are doing the work. And then the next week you add five or 10 pounds and say you get the same number of reps, but now the last two reps are the form's not the same. You kind of like break at the hip, you know, you let your torso do a little yeah. bit more work. Your muscles, which are dumb piece of meat, they don't think, wow, this person used five pounds more. I need to grow now. They think, well, I only received seven reps of tension instead of nine this week because the low back did the other, other two reps. So, um, so I think that keeping form consistent is the first thing that's most important. Uh, but using things like these partials and these lengthened sets and stuff like that are really simple ways of being able to continue to 
progress the stimulus of, of adding more tension to the muscle without having to go above and beyond and add five pounds or add a number of reps or increase a set. I mean, by God, like a, an entire set. And that's so much, that's so much additional volume, right? It's so much. People don't even realize it when they're like, well, that's my, my go-to. I think, well, one, that's a lot of time. If, if you believe in resting between sets, that's a lot of time to allow for a rest and then another set. But that's a huge increase. That is huge. People just don't think about that. Yeah, I uh, I used to follow the RP method when I first came out of CrossFit. That was kind of how I found my way into the evidence-based space. So it was kind of that set progression model um, back in 2017 or whatever. And so it would literally be like attempting to start a meso at two sets for uh, an exercise and maybe something like, you know, eight sets for the muscle group for the week. And then over the course of the five or six week meso cycle, you go from two sets per exercise to like five sets per exercise, which takes you from like eight sets to like 20 to 25 sets, uh, for a muscle group, which is like more than doubling your volume, mm -hmm. um, over the course of a meso cycle. And yeah, it was just, it was just not a good recipe for me, uh, at all. So, uh, so I'm glad I found my way back out of that. But, um, but yeah, I think the, the set, the set progression thing is certainly not necessary. And there's a number of these techniques that we discussed today that people can implement as a way to increase stimulus without having to, to add an entire set. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me finish up asking you one other question in the past two years, if you could pick like one or two things that you've changed your mind on. Maybe you used to believe that now you don't. I feel like we could probably change that to like three years ago and I'd have a much better answer for okay. you. Okay, okay, let's do three, three, four. <laughs> Are we going to go back all the way to CrossFit? <laughs> no, nah, definitely kidding. not, definitely not. Three years ago is before I would say I, I really began investing into the N1 system. And I would even say at this point that the way that I program and do things is like very influenced by N1, but I would say that there's still like a good 30 to 40% of what I do that, that is, is kind of a artifact of my last 20 plus years of training. So one thing for sure is that I, three years ago, I was still kind of in on, uh, barbell basic compound movements, uh, using free weights for the majority of things. That is something that I feel entirely different about now, such that I don't have a barbell in my program at all anymore for, for myself. Um, the programs that I write for others, we, we still use the things cause yeah, they're accessible, yeah. but for myself, like you, you said something in the beginning about, uh, longevity or injury prevention or something along those lines. And through the education and the knowledge that we've had with N1 and the kind of lining up of movements with the muscle fibers and things like that. It's kind of crazy to me that I'm, I've been training 25 years now and my body feels the best that it's felt since before CrossFit, which means like since my early twenties, kind of the use of cable machines and squat machines specifically have been a huge game changer for, for my elbow and shoulder health, the cable machines, huge. And for my low back and knees, hack squats and pendulum squats and leg presses and, and things like that. I'm one of those people that's not super well built to back squat. 
with a barbell. Like it just never felt good for yep. me really. Same. And as soon as I realized that I could slay my quads in so many different ways without ever having to put a barbell on my back again, that was like a huge light bulb moment for me. I was at a point at the very beginning of the pandemic where I was just about to give up back squatting and just say, you know what, I'm just going to lunge and split squat for all my leg work going forward and RDLs or whatever. And so thankfully I, I now have like a full home gym with a pendulum mm-hmm. squat and a hack squat and a functional trainer and a T-bar chest supported T-bar row and a leg extension, a leg curl and a 45 degree hip extension. And so I, I use entirely machines now. And, uh, and like I said, my body feels amazing. So that's, one big change in in the way that I, I feel about things. Second, I would say probably has to do with uh, execution. So the first one was maybe more focused on selection, like exercise selection being different. And I think the, the second one would be execution because even up until three years ago, I always had ego attached to my movement. And I think part of that was in fact related to doing these barbell and dumbbell basic movements through the years of CrossFit and through the years before CrossFit. I had these, these numbers in my head of, you know, I RDL this much, or I bench this much, or I back squat this much, you know, and, and if I ever put weight on, I need to at least be within the ballpark of these numbers, or that's going to mean that I've lost muscle, you know? Uh, which is just crazy association. Like it, it clearly is not that meaningful because ego is such a big part. I never put execution on a pedestal because my execution was what was necessary to match my numbers that my ego supported. Um, and if that meant going faster or letting my background on an RDL or caving my chest over on a back squat, mm-hmm. like, Hey, that's what you got to do to make sure you haven't lost muscle. When in reality, as I just said, back squatting with the exact same precision on every single rep is, is what's going to tell you whether you've gained or lost muscle. Um, I think that that's a huge lesson for me too. And I put so much more emphasis into, uh, just the quality of every rep. And then that can be extrapolated out further into the use of these partials and these reverse drop sets and stuff like that. So, so as we get into like two years, the, your original question, like what's changed in the last two years, it was right about two years ago where I started, becoming gung-ho about all this like lengthen stuff and i tend to jump in headfirst into these things and so i was like two years ago before any of the the experts in our field were were on board on the wagon with with lengthened movements i was on board <laughs> with them and i started doing these partials and these lengthen sets and stuff well before anybody else would i remember um it's now over a year and a half ago i had eric helms on my podcast and I grilled him a little bit about kind of the importance of the length and position on the row, specifically the row. And, and he was anti-committal. His statement was basically like, well, if we look at the RIR research, you know, you don't even have to be within five reps of failure to get hypertrophy. So why do we think we need to, you know, emphasize the length and portion of this movement? And now you look like a year and a half later in uh, Iron Culture, Eric Helms's podcast, they just did like three episodes on how important, you know, potentially training the length and position is and, you know, <laughs> yeah. different techniques that you can use to emphasize it and stuff. So in this one specific case, I feel very vindicated, but there's certainly been instances where I've jumped in and tried stuff and then been like, oh, that was a really, really shitty idea. Like I probably shouldn't have done that, you know? Uh, but in this case, I think I did the right thing and it's really cool that it's something that I, you know, jumped on really early. It felt positive to me for whatever feelings are worth. Mm-hmm. And now it 
is kind of ubiquitously accepted as, as a good thing to do. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. You were definitely ahead of the curve with that one because now it's pretty accepted that except for in biceps, right? Everybody's like, well, you'd want to overload the biceps in the mid position. You don't, I mean, that's the general statement that's being thrown out there. And I forgot to ask you your opinion on that. I have an opinion on it, (laughs) but what's your opinion on that? So my opinion is that all muscle groups probably respond to stretch mediated hypertrophy, meaning to the length and position that some probably just respond better than others. So like from the studies we have now, like it seems that the quads and the hamstrings probably respond exceptionally well to long muscle lengths. Uh, It seems that the triceps do as well. Whereas it's a little less convincing at this point for the chest and the biceps. But I would still say that I believe that it's no worse training at long muscle lengths and possibly slightly better. There you go. I think that's the perfect way to state it. Love it. Okay. Well, thank you. So is there anything else you want to tell my audience? Do you have any anything coming out? You, you already talked about your training program. Do you do nutrition or do you just do programming? Yeah, I, I do nutrition sometimes, but I, I, so I guess I don't really take one-on-one clients on too often. I, uh, I have three to five that I like to keep at a time because I think it's really important to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of like working with people yeah. one-on-one. Um, but it's obviously a poorer ROI than having group programs where I can reach many more people at a time. So I do try to keep the one-on-ones, um, a little, a little uh, fewer in my life. Uh, but I do work nutrition with some of my one-on-one clients and then our company Paragon training methods, we have, uh, five nutrition coaches on staff. So anybody that signs up for our training programs has access to our nutrition coaches through uh, our, our Facebook group. Yeah, so, so that's, that's that. Uh, we just came out with a program called Physique 45. And uh, kind of my other pet project, aside from long muscle lengths, is uh, minimalist training. And the, what is the minimal dose to not maintain, but to still progress? What is the minimum amount that you can do to still make progress? And is that amount that much different than what you would have to do to maximize progress. Like if, if 20 sets gets you all of your progress, but eight sets can get you 90% of your progress, like, is that a good trade-off for you or not? I mean, for me, that sounds like a really good trade-off. Um, so we just did an entire episode on my podcast about this and kind of delved into the research and stuff. But we came out with Physique 45, which is a four times a week, 45 minute physique program. And it really is just bare bones, necessities, basics, using kind of some rest pause sets and a lot of these partial and reverse drop sets and stuff to to emphasize the length and position and get more out of our time. So um, I think that these principles that we discussed today have applicability beyond just maximizing hypertrophy, but also as a way to get more out of less time, which I know that a lot of our listeners are probably all into as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, the principles that we shared today, I think one of the worst things that people could do is take these principles and add them on top of already excessive amounts of volume. Do you know what I'm saying? Because that's yeah. what people do. Yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, the, the magic pill is to now work it in the lengthened and do these quarter reps and do these drop sets and do all of these things. And I'm going to add it to what I'm already doing. And it's like... <laughs> no, you got to be wise about it. Otherwise you just have massive amounts of junk volume. 
uh, wasted time in the gym. Um, and you can even wonder why you're so tired, why you're so, I mean, working quarter reps, like I shared in a lengthened position, you're asking for mechanical damage. You're asking to be sore for days. And if you don't have the nutrition on top of it, to recover from that, then you're just asking for that. That's going to be a bad pairing. So definitely there, there's wisdom in how to apply these things for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Brian. Thank you for joining us today on the Lifting Lindsay podcast. If you have any questions, I will put Brian's Instagram and you have a website, right? Yeah. EvolvedTrainingSystems.com and ParagonTrainingMethods.com. Awesome. So we'll add those to the show notes as well. You can reach out and ask Brian any questions. He's super nice, down to earth. He wants to help. He, I, I feel like you love educating people. Like you're passionate about this. Yeah, I, I have way too many time, way too much time spent in DMs with people <laughs> that ask too many questions. You know, I'm sure you get these people too, where like someone asks a question and you answer it, and then they ask another one and you answer it, and then they give you like six more, and you're like, oh, my I know, God, you know, <laughs> that so. is so hard. There's a, um, I have learned lately to be a little bit more boundaryed. And be like, out of respect for my clients, I, I'm going to, this conversation has been really good. Like you can take and apply what you've learned so far and get ahead. But out of respect for my clients, I have to kind of stop. Like I, and it's always such an awkward thing, right? But boundaries are important. So, <laughs> but apparently, but guys, Brian just admitted he's not boundaried. So just <laughs> hound him <laughs> with every question that you want to ask me. Go <laughs> ask him. I'm going to set boundaries up. We're going to have like a jail set up now. Like, no more questions. People. Yeah, Stop. Exactly. Awesome. Well, but yeah, I'm glad to, I'm glad to answer them for real. Like if you guys have a question or two, I'm always glad. Just don't ask me like 12. There you go. Boundaries twelve. Mine is like six. Yeah. <laughs> Mine is six questions, but his is twelve. So, anyways, thank you so much for joining us today, guys. You guys have a great week. 